Blessed is the one who speaks aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. So Revelation chapter 2, we're reading verses 12 to 17 this week. Starting verse 12. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. You are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak a place or to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some, some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, we do hear your word, and we are thankful, Lord, that we are blessed if we both hear, not just be hearers of your word, but also doers. So, Father, we pray, God, that it would go the 18 inches down from our head, down to our hearts, Father, in through our hands and our feet, Lord, that we may apply your word. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity and the privilege that we have to sit at the, under the feet of Jesus, Father, to tune in, to listen to the words that you have for your church, Father. And we pray, Father God, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart will be acceptable to you, not because of what we've done and didn't do, but, Father, because of the finished work of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's through the power and the presence of, of Jesus and through the sending of his Spirit, so, Father, that we would have ears to hear, that we would be attentive, Lord. And as, Father, as we seek to hear your word, Father, allow it to do what it seeks out to accomplish. Father, by preparing our hearts and our minds, to be ready to receive. So, Father, be with us today. And, Lord, we'll do our best to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Welcome, 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 Blueprint Church. How are you guys doing today? Good. I hope you are doing well. We are excited to continue on in our series. We are, have been in the series in the book of Revelations. We've been looking at, um, the, looking at the message to the seven churches, to the seven churches that um, Jesus himself, in a time in, um, where we have churches are going that are struggling. We are struggling in attendance. We are struggling on so many fronts, so many different things, but we are struggling with relevance in so many different ways. And so here we have Jesus giving his word to the churches. And so we've been walking through, and today we're looking at the church 
in Pergamum. And, um, you know, and as I was preparing for this message, you know, the, the thought just constantly came to me, you know, as you, as you heard, the, the high priestly prayer. And it's specifically part in the high priestly prayer when Jesus is one of Jesus' last prayers in John chapter 17. He, he prays this prayer, or in the midst of his prayer, that we would be one, right, that we would be one. And, um, but in this prayer in verses John 17, 14 through 19, you don't have to read there, but I want to read part of this prayer to you. It says this, I have given them your word. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world. Just as I do not belong to the world, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you have sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And I set myself apart on their behalf so that they may be truly set apart. You know, one of the things that you hear in that is the, 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 this concept of how do we be as believers both in the world but not of the world? How can we be in the world but not of the world? That we are called to be people of the word, not people of the word. In the, today's message, in today's passage, uh, 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 specifically addresses this issue. How can we be people in the world, but ultimately people of the Word? And so in Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17, I think is a manifestation or the struggle that we have in trying to live out what Jesus was praying for us in his high priestly prayer. As he was about to go to the Father, having set out to do all that he's already done, that he is now praying on for you. He's praying for me. He's praying on behalf of his church that we would be one and that we would be one that is set apart, set apart by the keeping, the maintaining, the holding, the clinging to his word, the clinging to his word. And so the question that we're going to ask and answer today is how do people, how do we as believers be people in the world but not of the world? How do we be people of the word? You know, and this passage gives us a couple of warnings in, a, in, in the end, he gives us an exhortation. It tells us to beware of our surroundings, beware of the times that we are in. But it also tells us to beware of this term, this fancy term that we'll explain, beware of syncretism. Beware of syncretism or the merging of our faith with the world. And then finally, it tells us to stick close to the Savior. Stick close to the Savior. So let's beware of our surroundings, beware of syncretism, and let's stick close to our saviors. So let's start off with the bewaring of our surroundings. In chapter 2, verse 12, it starts off with, as many of the letters, talking about who it is addressed to. In verse 12, it says this, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. 
And so this letter starts off with just like many of the other letters and starting off or this passage started off with just exactly who the Lord is addressing. Remember, as we talked about, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ to these seven churches. And he starts with this to the angel of the Lord, delivering this message to the church, the local church in Pergamum. Right. And what I love in this passage is that he starts off in this, you know, in verse 13, he starts off and he says, I know where you live. I know where you live. And so when he starts with this, this idea is that Jesus basically speaks with the level of empathy. He speaks with the level of sympathy. He speaks with the level of understanding. That word know means that it shows Jesus's omniscience, that I am all-knowing. This is not secondhand knowledge that I'm giving to you. I know intimately where you live. And he goes in when he says, I know where you live, speaking to his knowledge, his true understanding of where he lives. See, when, if you were a Jew in that time, or if you were even a Roman citizen in that time, there was a couple of significant reasons when they stated the name Pergamum. It's sort of like stating the name New York or say the name Chicago that, or L.A., that there's certain kind of um, connotations that come along when you say these statements, or New Orleans, or these statements. And these cities had certain reputations or certain names that they had. It says, oh, I know where you live, and they lived in the city of Pergamum. This was, Pergamum was significant for a few reasons. First, it was significant because it was the center of culture in that time. It was the center of culture that it had one of the largest universities there. It had one of the largest libraries in Pergamum. That in Pergamum, that, that their library was so big, it was only second to that of Alexandria, right? That the word Pergamum basically is where we get the word parchment. Parchment. Parchment is ultimately the thing that eventually took over papyrus as the primary way in which that they kept records of things. So it was very influential in that way, that this was the place that held knowledge in so many different ways. So it was the center of culture, but it was also a place of the center of great pagan religion, pagan religion. This was a place that was so, it was so pagan, it was known as kind of the lordess of religions, right? There, there, was, there was such religious um, religious zeal, there are intensity there that, then, that there was emperor worship. There was a place built for Zeus. There was a place that they, that they would say that this was the place that was like held up Greek culture. Like Pergamum was this place. It was considered the custodian of so many different ways of thinking, and it boasted in all of the different ways whether it be Greek life or Greek worship or emperor worship, even emperor worship that they worshiped every few years. They had a celebration for the emperor who was to be worshiped. So it was a, it was a center of pagan religion, but it was also a center for Roman power. That Pergamon was one of three cities there, it was a city that, that they had the rare power of what they would consider capital punishment capital punishment, or the way that they talked about it then was the right of the sword, the right of the sword, which was basically, which basically means that Roman governors throughout the Roman Empire, um, they landed in one or two classes. One, there's those people who had the right of the sword, and, you know, and those who did not have the right of the sword. The right of the sword was the power of death. 
and the power of life. It was the, the ability that's for a Roman governor to ex- execute capital punishment on the spot. They didn't have to ask anybody. They had that privilege. And that right was only given to a few cities, a few governors, and Pergamum was one of them. They had the right of the sword, right? And so they recognized that Jesus says, I know where you live. I understand that there are a possibility of severe consequences for your disobedience. I know where you live. And not only does he leave it, leave it there, because right after he says, I know where you live, it kind of goes on and says, I know that it's Satan's throne. So not only is it the place, like it's a place with all of these things, it is the place that John describes Pergamum as one of the most pagan of all of the seven cities. He describes it as Satan's throne. And then he ends it, he says, this is at the, in verse, in the end of verse 13, he says, this is where Satan lives. So he doesn't go into much explanation, but he says, I know where you live, and I know that Satan seems to be running shop there. It's the place where everyone is just kind of wilding out, right? And so we see this is the very site of where Satan lives. That, because, again, so many pagan temples in the city, right, so many different things, an altar to Zeus, emperor worshiper, were worshiped there, that this was the place of Satan's dominion. I remember, you know, a couple of years ago when I went to Greece, where we took our daughter to Greece, and, I, you know, and when, there's so much history in Greece, and, you know, especially some time, you know, in the Bible, and, you know, and so we went to the city of Athens, and I was just looking forward to seeing, Ath- you know, Mars Hill and different things, and I remember thinking about there was going to be so much more of a Christian presence there, but then as I went, I was just like, you know, Christianity and even the Christian presence was, was very minimal there, you know, as I went, and I remember sitting on, you was, we were at Mars Hill, you know, the famous Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, and I remember sitting at Mars Hill, and literally, like, there was kind of in this man-made amphitheater, and this, you know, in, like, it's just a rock now, but the rock, and then as you're sitting, and you're listening, and you're, like, basically where the people were sitting, you're sitting, and you're communicating, I got a vision or a picture of what Paul would have been like, that as he's talking to them, that you see, all you can see is right behind there is the Parthenon, right? And it had all, and then on the Parthenon, if you went up, you see all the Greek goddesses. And it's like it's the high, one of the highest points in all of Athens. And as you're preaching the gospel, you are constantly reminded. And so when Paul made the statement, I see that you are very religious. I see that you are very religious. But I also see that you have one to the unknown God. And I want to come to you and proclaim to this unknown God. And so here we are that he's saying like in Pergamum, this is the case. I see that what is happening is that Satan runs shop. Here, there's so many different pagan religions. There's so many different things that that are taking place as believers. I see that. And not only do I see that, I see and I know that the consequences, the consequences that you are faced, these consequences are real. These are real consequences that are real. And so as you see the, the logic, I know where you live. I know it's Satan thrones. And I know that there are real consequences. How do we know that there's real consequences? Because he says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Some people, some translations may have witness, but it's the same word. Witness and martyr is the same word in the Greek. And so my faithful martyr. 
And it says, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. You see, he says, I know, right, that there are real consequences to following me, right? And he, and he says in the days of Antipas, you know, I don't know. There, the Bible doesn't talk much about this guy Antipas. But Antipas, is, the thought is, is that he was a dentist or some type of physician um, during that time and that he was expected to be preaching Christ in that time. And they accused him of his disloyalty to Caesar, his disloyalty to Caesar. And so he was condemned to death. He was shut into a brazen or a copper bull and literally heated to death. He says, I know the consequences. I know that it is real. But what I love about that word, even the name Antipas, but, you know, as you look at the word Antipas, basically the word anti is where, you know, Antipas is, anti is where we get the word against. Pas is all. And what I love about the word picture that we see where he talks about, I know my servant or my faithful martyr or my faithful witness Antipas, is that this idea that he was a faithful witness. Why? Because he was against all. Antipas, against all. He didn't compromise the truth. There was no compromise in him. He stood for my word, and he suffered the consequences. He suffered the consequences. He says, I know. And so Jesus begins to this church, and he says, listen, I know where you live. I know it's Satan's throne, and I know that following me can have some serious consequences. Jesus, is, he, Jesus is, un, is not aware or is unaware. Jesus is very aware. You know, and as we think about even in our day that Jesus knows, he is intimately involved. He knows the very heads of our head. He knows our dreams. He knows the pressures on our jobs. He knows the feelings that we have of being lonely and isolated at school. He knows the, you know, by choosing him or choosing to do the way, to do things the way that he has. The, perf- the pressure that we have to perform. He knows the consequences of choosing him. He knows that in a day, in a time that these consequences are real, even for us, he knows that for, even for us as Americans, it may not be death, but he knows that it may be the loss of real friendships, the death of loved ones, the death of long-term relationships, the death of even career ambitions. Jesus is like, I know. And he starts off with this commendation. He says, I know where you live. I know where you live, church. But there's, there's this kind of thought that he says, well, even though I know, there's two words that are key that you can real quickly miss if you don't see. He says, The first one was right before in the verse. He says, thus says the one who has the sharp and double-edged sword. And the other one is yet. Thus and yet. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. And so here we have, we have two words that are are two kind of thoughts that are competing with one another. That word thus basically means that I understand, but consequently, or with that being said, or even as a result, or even for this reason, I understand all of that. In light of all of that, Jesus Jesus Christ describes himself as the antithesis, or 
the against all in this. He describes himself as the one who judges with his word. The one who judges with his word. The sharp two-edged sword. That in the Greek, the more literal reading would be like Christ has the sword, the two-edged one, the sharp one. And so he puts in there the, the infinitive or the definite article right there. He says that even though they have the sword, right? Because in that, you got to understand the word picture, that Pergamum had the ability or the right of the sword. But Jesus comes and pits himself against, he says, I have the two-edged sword, the um, sharp one. And he says, I have the one. So and it's like, ultimately, I know that there's consequences in the world, but my consequences are even greater. And he creates this idea of the two-edged sword and that this, this thought is, repeats itself multiple times in the scriptures, right? And even in the book of Revelations, you, you saw it earlier. He says he has in 116, I have eyes that can see all things. I have the sword, the double-edged sword in 116. He talks about it in Revelation 19.15, Revelation 19.21, right? He says, he talks about God's word, Hebrews chapter 4. God's word both separates believers from the world. It separates sinners from God. God's word brings both life and death. God's word alone brings about true judgment. Right? And so he, he lays it down and says, God's word, I know. And he says, thus, in light of that, I know that I am the one who ultimately brings about true judgment. But then he goes on and says, yet those who are holding on. You see, the word, the word yet is to indicate the contrast between their location that they're in and the faithfulness of the few, the faithfulness of the few that were there. And so what we see is there's the challenge. So here we are. We have these two things in the very first um, that, uh, to the church of Pergamum, right? There are people. I know where you live. I know that it's Satan's throne, and I know that there's real consequences. But I also know that I am the Lord, the one who all ha- that hold ultimate power, and that there's faithful people. I know both. I know the tension that you are in. I recognize. I know that. I mean, he also recognized the challenge that there. And so this is why he goes on. He says, but so therefore we have to beware. Beware of syncretism. Beware recognizing that we are susceptible to beginning to merge kind of our world with the word. The word syncretism is a fancy word, but let me just give you a definition of syncretism. Secretism is the merging or attempting to merge of different religions, cultures, and schools of thoughts. It's the merging or attempting to merge of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought. I was raised in the church, and I remember, you know, as like going throughout my life and not being raised, and then um, during the time where I just knew like my life was baseball, football was my God, and I was like, there has to be more than the sports, or more than life than sports. 
right? And so I started searching. So I started studying different religions in college, right? I, I studied Hinduism, Buddhism, African tribal religions. I studied um, the nation of Islam. I mean, I was studying all different types of religion. And I remember early on, I was just like, I don't get all of the different religions and all the things that's going on. And I was just like, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make up my own religion. And I was going to put together a little bit of this and the best of that. And I was going to put like a, my best mixtape together, Right? And it was going to be a merging of all the, all the different religions because this was also a time that was like, you know, um, like I saw the nation of Islam and they were coming into our neighborhoods and they were going to the places that the people, that even the cops wouldn't want to go. And they were like, and I saw, I saw all the good and different things. And I was just like, I'm just going to put all of these things together because I wanted something that created, that I had, right? That I understood, right? And so he says, this is, this is one of the dangers that we have. And so we see, he says, the syncretism or emerging or attempting to merge of different religions, cultures, or schools of thoughts. He says, I understand and that they're susceptible, especially in a place like America, where you have the freedom of religion, the freedom of thought, the freedom to kind of believe and to think and all of that. And so what we have is that we have this like a mixing and emerging of all. And so he goes on and he says this, verse 14, he says, but... But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you, have also, you, have, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Right? And so in here, what we see is that the people of Pergamum was obviously being encouraged, especially Christians, the Christians to join the pagan feast, the sexual immorality. The, and, they, and, and ultimately, you see that some of them actually did that. And so in here, what, it, what it, he brings out, that there's two prominent schools of thought that kind of emerged during this time. Right? And, and they're both... Schools of thoughts that really attack God's word. Overall, throughout the Bible, what you see is that there, there's a couple of schools that, that are constantly attacking God's word, the truth of God's word. One is legalism. Legalism is that you see this, this concept of legalism is, is the religion are dependent on moral law rather than personal faith, like legalism. But then the other one is antinomianism. Antinomianism is basically without law. There is no law. It's kind of live and let live. It's kind of do what you want. Live your life. You only live one life. Live your best life now. And so these schools of thought were the two kind of competitors that we see um, constantly throughout the scriptures. People who are trying to merit it by the law and people who had without any type of law or any type of moral standard, they were just kind of living their best life. And so what we see right here is that even though there's two different camps, right, both of these camps in the church right here is focusing in on specifically the dangers of, the dangers of antinomianism. He doesn't. So one would be represented, legalism would be represented more by the Pharisees and, you know, and some of those religious leaders. And we know much about that throughout the Bible. But right here, Right? The two people or the two camps that he talks about are, two, are people who are promoting antinomianism without law. 
without law, a religion without law. And so as he brings these, like, these are the products of Balaam, but then also the, what the, the group that was called the Nicolaitans. And if you remember, the Nicolaitans were the one, the same Nicolaitans that it says the church of Ephesus, you hate it. Right? Early on, it says you hated the Nicolaitans, but now that what the church in Ephesus hated their teachings, you have here the church of Pergamum embracing it, or at least allowing them to stay and live among them. Right? And so you see these, these, whole, these coming together. And so in here, you see the two camps. It says, so some is holding the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam. And if you remember the story of Balaam, if you don't, you can go back and read it. It's Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Numbers 22 through 25 is the story of Balaam, right? In um, 22 to 20 chapters, 22 to 25, but also 3116, you see the results of what happened. 3116, if you just like to know what the end of the story is, just go read 3116. Then you can go back and then look at 22 to 25. But 3116 gives us a picture of the impact of what Balaam had, right? And Balaam basically told Balak or even the Israelites how to overcome the Israelites. And basically the thought of Balaam was that this prophet, he would say the way to, you know, undo God's people is to get God's people to start compromising God's word. And then they would lose favor in God's word, in God's sight. And so that was the sin of Balaam. Peter refers to the sin of Balaam. Like, and you see all throughout that the sin of Balaam is when God's people, God's teachers, God's leaders begin to compromise God's word. They begin to compromise. They don't keep the main thing the main thing, right? They don't, they're not like Antipas, who's against everything, all that God is against, right? And so we, we, what we see is, is this reality that, that they had. And so he said, the, the, the story of Balaam, we see that they would render, this would render them unfaithful to God and ultimately subject them to discipline, that they knew if we can just get God's people not to sit under God's word or God's authority, they would lose God's favor, which makes God's people susceptible. And this was the sin of Balaam. And so what do they do? Right? They said, eat meat sacrificed to idols, commit sexual immorality, live your best life. God wants you to be happy. He wants what's best for you. And then if you're a people, if you're, you know, quote unquote, God's man or God's prophet, you can have, you can live your best life without any guilt. Without anything. Oh, that's not sin. I mean, there's some, there's some quick, some things that I can just explain to you to show you that that's not really sin, right? And so what we have is that there's people in the church, in the people of Pergamum, because they wanted, they allowed this to, to remain under them. They stopped calling sin, sin. They stopped calling these things that were clear to God's word sinful, right? And so one theologian says it this way. He says, the problem of the church in Pergamum was not the Nicolaitans existed in the city, but that they were within the church. They were allowed to, they were allowed to host the pulpit, to, to, stay, to stay in the pulpits. They were allowed, and no one was speaking out against them. They were allowed. So the problem is not that other, the Nicolaitans existed, but they existed in a place that was not 
where they were supposed to be existence. And as Christians, we got to understand that we are constantly in danger of the syncretism, constantly in danger, right, of allowing this to come in. So we are to, uh, we are to lean in to the Savior. You know, and I know often, ultimately we would think that this is, this is something that is, yeah, it's not going to happen to us, though. Right? We wouldn't allow this. We, just, we got God's word. We wouldn't allow this type of struggle within our churches. But I want to give you a couple of examples. One, I want to give you the Corinthian example, but then I also want to give you a modern-day example. Right? The church of Corinth was in a very similar situation. Right? Paul warned them about the dangers of syncretism. Right? And what he saw was that they, like, in a very similar place, very similar, like the place of Pergamum. Corinth was one of the greatest places in the sense of, they, like, in terms of thought. They had all these universities in Corinth, right? They had all these schools of thought in Corinth, right? There was so much that was taking place that was going on in Corinth, and Paul warned them that this. This, these thoughts, if you allow it to sink in, it would impact your personal growth. It would, stim- it would become a stumbling block, and it also would be a danger. Remember, Paul, at the very beginning of his letters, he says, some say you're of Paul, some say you're of Apollos, some say you're even of Cephas. He says these divisions, these thoughts, these, like, these divisions, and he says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, this is carnal Christianity. This is fleshly. You think it's wise, but it's flesh." You think. And so what happened was, what ends up happening is when you just create a a Christianity that's all about debating, debating, right? This brings about like these stumbling blocks or foolishness in so many different ways. And so we see some of the impacts on Christianity in Corinth, right? We see that there's no standard. There's just parties. Paul, Apollos, right? There's just, you know, this, there's, there's no one, there's no standard there. There's no true standard, right? When there's no true standard, what we do is we repeat the thing, the very thing that we see in the book of Judges. What in the book of Judges? That over and over they were in the cycles, over and over again. And what was the statement that they kept on saying? In that time, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's so much more. That's it. It's like, hey, you do you, I'll do me. Right? And this is what we have. So there was no standard. Right? There was no true standard. The other one is that there's no, it brought about collective confusion. Right? And so what we see that in in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 25, it talked about to the Greeks, the gospel, it's like foolishness. Right? You believe in that fairy tale? You believe in the Bible? Right? To those who are intellectually smart and have it all, who got all the degrees and all the philosophy and all the, it's foolishness to them. But then it says, but to those who are trying to live up morally, the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They trip over it. Right? And it brings about this confusion that we have. And so what does Paul says? He says, just preach Christ in him crucified. Christ in him, cru- in him crucified. It brought about this collective confusion, but it also um, brought, so it brought this stumbling block, 
It becomes a stumbling block to others. It says your freedom, because the Corinth was arguing, they had this great intellectual argument about how free that they are. I can eat meat sacrificed to idol. There is no really true God. And if there was a true God, and you know, and they had all of these sacrifices. And Paul goes through in chapters, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, through chapter 10. Just go back and read it. Chapter 8 through 10, he says, all right, intellectually, if you want to argue is there only one real God? Yes, there's only one real God. And intellectually, all of those things. And so could you actually eat meat that is offered or sacrificed to another? Yes, if there's no true God, the only one true God, then yes, and you can do it. However, all things may be permissible, but all things are not profitable. And he says that if my freedom causes someone else to stumble, I will never, ever do it again, because there's a greater principle at work, the principle of love. But when there's no standard, what we have is that we that are arguing and are fighting and are becomes a stumbling block to others. But then again, what you see in Corinth, not only it also brings about toxic shame from within. It brings about toxic shame. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three. It says, "Don't be deceived." Bad company corrupts good morals, right? If you keep hanging out with the people that you're hanging out, you're going to start smelling like the people that you hang out with. You know, I know you think you'll be the one, but he says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals, good morals, even the best. And so he basically says, don't lose your gospel identity. Don't get so prideful. And so this over and over again, he says, the church of Corinth has these, this is an example that we have. But not only is it the church of Corinth, but we also see that we have our own current dangers, right? That we're about to enter into the midterm elections, and we have the same danger that we have. Getting in bed with the, with the Republicans, getting in bed with the Democrats, that it's a form of syncretism that we have, that the, the syncretism that we have in our religious practices, kind of in our Bible, that now we, that it's the Bible plus other things, the Bible plus, and we have now placed authority of other things just on par with the Scripture, right? And what we see over and over again, and he says that there's these dangers that we have, right? Whether how we view our finances, how we view all, all of things, that we see. And so what we see, the, the, the streams, republicanism, democratism, white evangelicalism, black Christianity, right? And so what we do is we start um, aligning ourselves. And this is what I love in Joshua chapter 5 when Joshua was about to go into to war. And he goes in and the angel of the Lord approaches them. And he was just like, wait, 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 Joshua. He said, the angel, Joshua asked the angel of the Lord, whose side are you on? And the angel of the Lord says, I'm not on your side or their side. The only side I'm on is on the Lord's side, right? He says, I'm, 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 I'm under, submitting myself under the authority of God's word, right? Because as soon as you start putting on labels, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Arminian, or I am of Calvin, or I am of white evangelicalism, or I am of wokeness, or I am of whatever it is, the label that you put on, what you start doing is, is that I got to start answering all the questions like they would answer the questions. And I got to make everything bend to the way that, that it would bend to. And so what we see, this, this happening, 
this, this taking place in our very own day, that in North America, that the two primary thoughts that are competing and that we, all you got to do is go on Twitter right now and follow any Christians that you see white evangelicalism and black or black indigenous people of color fighting on these schools of thoughts, right? And, there, and there's this, this fight that's emerging, or that's not emerging, that is. And this is, and it plays itself out in so many different ways. I remember just asking some group of people, just simple the question, right? Are we willing to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And, and let's just say historically, you know, just for sake of argument, the main theme is what it means to be evangelical. And recognizing that evangelical or evangelicalism is evangelical Christianity or evangelical Protestantism, that this is a worldwide interdenominational movement with Protestant Christianity that affirms a few things, the centrality of Christ, the necessity of being born again, right? The fact that the Bible is the ultimate authority, the fact that we ought to be active with our faith, right? And so if we just do the middle column right here, that if we would just talk about the middle column right here, this says that evangelicals across the world, that what we see is that these are the four primary tenets, that the Bible is the authority, the cross is um, the, 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 the essential nature of the cross, the crucicentrism, and then conversion, that you must be born again. You must be saved. And then finally, that activism that we ought to take and to be active with our faith. You see, but the reality is, is that through our echo chambers and through our, um, through our, like, our, even our discipleship, environments, what has happened is, is that what, there's these terms that come out is that white evangelicalism. And white evangelicalism is specifically, you know, falls under a lot of these categories, right? White evangelicalism believes that in order to be faithful to the scriptures, you have to vote Republican. White evangelicalism would also tell us that the primary issue is against abortion, Right? That's the primary issue. White evangelicalism will tell us that capitalistic is the, is the way. Um, white evangelicalism will tell us that the, the, you know, the idea of um, oh yeah, being patriotic, right? love for country. Right? White evangelicalism will tell us the individual that our personal quiet time is the highest of all of anything. That these are all products of being discipled within white evangelicalism. But the same is true. Then when we talk about our discipleship environments, or our echo chambers when amongst black Christianity, right? Our black evangelicalism, because where 80% of white evangelicals vote for Republicans, 90 up to 90% of black Americans vote for Democrat. And not only does 90% of African Americans are close to 90%, but we also, this is the same for Asian. Asian is 70%, Hispanic is 65%. That majority of one culture votes for the Democrats. And so what we see, that is this because of faithful reading of the Scripture? How can people who all are committed to reading the Bible come up with two different conclusions? Right? Because it's a part of our discipleship environments. We've been discipled to believe these things. These are the echo chambers in which we live in. Right? And so we recognize where abortion is, is an issue, for um, maybe an issue, but it's not the primary issue. The primary issue is systemic racism, 
right? And we see this taking place, right? The, prim- the primary issue. And so you see holistically, again, if you look at the world, right? Socialism, sharing the idea that not being patriotic because we're skeptical. Is there really a place in America because of the history of slavery, the history of all of the things that takes place, individualistic versus communal, right? So there's so many different things, but the reality is that this becomes, and what happens is as soon as you start aligning yourself with one or the other, then you start thinking that I have to answer the word and answer all problems based upon these. Right? And then we begin to create these echo chambers. And so here we have the same thing that we see taking place in the church of Pergamum. Right? The church of Pergamum says you left the, the word. You left kind of my faithfulness. And so the question that I ask is that are we willing to keep the main thing the main thing? Are we willing to keep the main thing the main thing? The Bible is essential. What I love, what I struggle with in such as this is kind of like, because listen, we can come up with different sides, but are you willing to sit down with me and to wrestle? Because we're not talking about live and let live. You do you, I'll do me. That's not what I'm talking about. But there's so many times it's like, are we allowed to allow a simple reading of God's word to be the final authority? to whatever we're bringing down. And the, the, the fact that I've been rejected so many times about this a simple reading of God's Word, an understanding of God's Word, that God's Word is no longer authoritative. It's no longer the, 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 the thing that sets itself. Are we willing to keep the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of God essential? Are we willing to say that the the idea that you must be born again, you must be converted in order to be God's children or God's child? Like, are we willing to keep the things that that the Bible is screaming? The Bible's not silent on these things. Are we willing to keep these things, all these secondary and tertiary issues, tertiary issues? We can talk about them, but are we willing to keep the main thing the main thing? So whether you vote Democrat or whether you vote Republican, we can talk and we can debate all day, but are we willing to keep the main thing? Are we? Are we willing to stop demonizing people who don't think like me, talk like me, and act like me? Make people less than human. Because the reality is, is that people are people and everybody has a story. You are the way you are because of the environments that you were brought up. How you were trained, how you were disciples, the echo chambers in which you live in. You are who you are. Are we willing to not demonize people They are what they are because of their discipleship environments, right? But this idea of people not holding on to God's truth, right? Ultimately, what what, um, Jesus is saying to the church, he says, are you willing to stick close to the Savior? Are you willing to stick close to the Savior? You see, because the church in Pergamum, the church in Corinth and the church in America, we have so many different expressions, so many different thoughts, so many different people who have all kind of different understandings and different type of applications of it. You know, what's interesting in all of this is that even in, like we talk about this concept of the word and like even the, the D, um, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting the word. Deconstruction, there it is, thank you. Even in the deconstruction, 
of it that we see times. What was the deconstruction? If you look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts is about deconstructing the faith, decolonizing the faith, and building up the faith, that they were solely Jews in that time. And how did you go from a monolithic culture to a, homo, uh, to a multi-ethnic one? Right? It was because of deconstructing. It was because of decolonizing. They were basically asking the question is, how Jewish do I have to be in order to be a Christian? How Jewish do I have to be? How much do I have to take on its customs? But so it's, a very, it's an important thing to understanding that we can see deconstruction. We can even see decolonizing in the scriptures. But the issue is that they deconstructed, they decolonized through God's word. Whenever there was an issue that came of how Jewish I have to be the Christian, what did they do? The apostles, they got together to study God's word. And that was the center of truth of what is essential and what is convenient. But I don't see that happening in our day. We haven't, we're people in the world but we're not people of the word. We're not people of the word. And so they would get together and they would come up with these things and they would break it down like we, would, like we talked about. There's a difference between those that is principle, that is prudence, and that's preference. We got to stop making, we got to stop this partisanism and when it comes to the Bible. That there's only certain parts of the Bible that I want to champion. While there's other parts, I'm not. Right? And he says, that, and that's what the Nicolaitans were doing. That's what the people were doing. That's what the church of Pergamum, we are allowing these thoughts to creep in, and we are aligning ourselves with political parties, with, um, with, with people and others and organizations that don't completely align with God's word. So he says, I have this against you. I have this against you. You're not being people of my word. And there's an impact to that. There's an impact to that. And so what is the solution? Verse 16, he says, repent. Change. Change the way you see me. Change the way you see God. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly, fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see that word repent? And I want to look at it in a little different way. I mean, we talk often about repent. It means to simply change but ultimately what he's saying is, return home. Return home. Come back. Come back home. Come back to when you were in love with my word. Come back when, uh, when my word rang true in you. Come back to, the, to me, to understanding. And the challenges that we see is basically the constant theme of the disciples is simply Come home, return home, return back to the word of God, return back to the wisdom of God, return back. Acts chapter 15, 20, the instructions and the decisions from the Jerusalem council in regard to the idolatrous practice, and, right? They were just saying, come home. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty through 34, it says, some of us are sick. It is time for us to self-examine ourselves and to return home, right? The fault of that what they have was that there wasn't enough prophets and enough leaders and enough people calling people to return home. And let's keep the main thing the main thing. I have made it my conclusion that if I'm going to ever err, I'm going to err because Jesus said it. And if I'm wrong at heaven's gate because it's through a simple reading of God's word, then I'm just going to be wrong. But I want to be people that are in the world, but of the word, of God's word. 
And God's word has to be central. In this church, God's word has to be central in order for us. And it doesn't mean that we're all going to end up believing the same thing or thinking the same thing or having the same politics or the same stuff, but we are going to be people who are saying, like, I'm willing to submit to God's word. And as we begin to talk and think, then let's, then let's do it. Because instead, if we're, if we're going to dig our heels into our worldly politics or our constant critiques and not return home to the one who's created us, like, we're just, we're in danger. We're in danger. And that's why it says we have to stick close to the Savior. And this is why in verse 17, like he says to all the churches, he says, let anyone who has ears to hear. Some of you already know, you're not listening. You're worried about how I represented your view. You didn't even hear anything I said. And I get it. Right? Because that's the way we do. We're so concerned about our side, our views, and we dig it in. It says, so Jesus says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Tune in. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone and a stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. You see, on this side of eternity, you may suffer persecution. On this side of eternity, you may end up like Antipas. You may lose a lot by just sticking close to God's word. You may lose some friends. I can't guarantee you. You may lose some relationships. You may lose a lot of stuff by sticking close to God's word. But understand that if they hate you for sticking his, close to his word, it's because they first hated him. And this is why the Bible says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart, being ready always to give a defense of the hope that you have within him. But do this with gentleness and with respect. Do it with fear, recognizing that our goal is reconciliation. Our goal is that we want to be united and reconciled to our brothers, reconciled to our sisters. We don't want to be opposed. Christ died that we will be one. Right? He died so that we would be one. And so he says, if anyone has ears to hear, you will receive the hidden manna. He will give you that, that manna, that, that thing to sustain you, and you don't know how you're being sustained, even though that in the midst of everybody leaving, I'll give you that hidden manna. I'll give you that, that white stone. That white stone was the, uh, the stone in that time that was a stone that was given to the victor, right? It was given to the victor. I'll write a new name. You were inscribed that when Jesus said that this, this concept of baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you will have a new identity, right? And you go from all nations, go baptize all nations to a new identity of being that of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't make you any less black or any less white or any less Hispanic or any less Asian. It doesn't make you any less but what makes you is makes you his. It makes you his. And I pray that that is the one thing that we all are concerned about, about being his, more than it is about being any other thing or any other adjective, allowing that to describe us. But we would be his in his alone. That we would take on the new name that is inscribed on the stone. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're thankful.
Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.